Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Dr. Gregory Half. Greg is an associate professor and course coordinator for strength and conditioning with inside the School of Medicine and Health at Edecown University in Australia. Dr. Half is one of the top published sports scientists in modern times and has recently co-edited the fourth edition of the NSEA's Essentials of Strength and Conditioning and also was co-author along with Tudor Bomper on the fifth edition of Periodization. On this episode, Greg and I discussed many topics including Greg's background and his influences. What does the term periodization mean to Greg? Greg's thoughts on John Kiley's writings on periodization. We discussed what Greg sees as the holy grail in periodization, training residuals. Why Greg believes strength development is fundamental. Training compatibility of alactic and aerobic qualities. And Craig and I just had a really great discussion around energy system development. Now, before I let you guys listen to the episode, I just want to say that the audio on this episode is a little shaky. And I do apologize for that. Nobody was more disappointed about the audio quality of this episode than I was. Um, What had happened was I had recorded a number of podcasts back to back in the space of about a week. And it was only when I went back to listen to all of them that I realized that the audio in all of them was not of the best quality. Um, The audio software on my laptop was just acting up. Since that I fixed it and this is the last episode where the audio is a little bit shaky. So because of that I hope to get... Uh, Dr. Hat back on sometime in the future, maybe hopefully in October, where I will interview him again with better audio. So I do apologize for that, guys. But uh, apart from that, I hope you do enjoy the episode. It was a really, really great show, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Okay, Dr. Gregory Hat, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. You're someone who I've been wanting to get onto the show for quite a while now. Just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with uh, who you are, just fill us in on your background. Uh, well, my name is Dr. Greg Hoff. I'm the, the course coordinator of the Master Conditioning Program at Edith Cowan University. Um, I'm also the president of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, um, I've been doing strength and conditioning based research for about 17, 18 years now. Uh, I do a lot of work with periodization, strength training theory, um, force time curve analysis, much all things related to being strong. Um, so I have a unique background. I was a, a weightlifter. I studied with Um and continue to do lots of research here at Edith Cowan. Great stuff. Um, can you maybe just uh, touch into your time with Dr. Stone? How, how was that? I know I know of uh, Dr. Mike Isertel and he speaks so highly of Mike Stone and anyone who talks about Dr. Stone you know, speaks so highly of him because he's, he's so much published literature out All there. Right. So. scientists 
from the U.S. Uh, for our strength and conditioning. Uh, he's intense. He's, he's an intense guy to work with, uh, but it's really rewarding. Um, you know, he's a good guy. He's loyal. He's, he's someone that, you know, I consider a, a friend and a mentor. Um, he's somebody that a lot of us try to aspire to be like as far as work ethic and, and passion for strength and conditioning. Um, I can't think of anyone who blends applied and science as well as he does, his generation. Um, and it was really an honor to work with him and study with him. I mean, he probably changed the course of my life a little bit. Um, I originally just wanted to be a strength coach and went to study with him to do such. And I love strength and conditioning and coaching, but he really piqued my interest into the scientific side. So um, a wonderful fellow. Um, coached me to numerous national championship competitions, uh, spent a lot of time with him, lifting and traveling, and, and a really good guy. Great stuff. And just kind of following on from that question, so obviously Mike Stone's been a huge influence on you. Um, who else have been massive influences on you, not only as a um, coach and as a researcher, but also as a, hu- as a human? Ah, well, let's see. You know, from, from a perspective or a coaching perspective, someone I really, I kind of really admire and follow is Jimmy Radcliffe from the University of Oregon. Mm. Um, Jimmy's probably one of the best strength coaches in the world, but he's not a self-motor to get out there and, you know, beat his chest and, and, and tell you how great he is. His, just, his work speaks for itself. So I really enjoy uh, Jimmy's applied stuff. I really look to that quite frequently. Um, as far as researchers slash coaches go, I'm a really big fan of Duncan French. Um, I've known Duncan for many years, and he's someone that I, I really uh, admire as, as far as his ability to be applied and scientific. And he's someone that I call on for advice at times and just talk. We're just really good friends. But he's had an influence on me. He probably doesn't realize it, but he has. Um, as far as, like, a classic influences, I'd say Yuri Berkoshansky is someone that I read a lot of his stuff. I'm really impressed with what he did in his generation. And that's impacted some of my thought processes. Um, as a person, I mean, you know, my father probably is the most influential person in my life. And, uh, he, he really instilled a certain kind of work ethic in me. And then my partner in crime, my wife, who's probably one of the best weightlifting coaches I know, um, and she's actually challenged a lot of the beliefs that I might have had coming from Mike Stone's group um, with, and made me defend what I do and, and kind of think through things a little bit. So, I mean, I think you can learn from just about anybody. And, mm. you know, I always tell people, like, I met Mike Stone because of Andy Fry. I was a young junior weightlifter, and he introduced me to Bill Kramer, Andy Fry, John Garhammer, and Kyle Pierce. And so I always tell people Andy's probably the one that put me on my path uh, completely by accident. Yeah, that's great. So sounds sounds like you and your wife have some interesting uh, dinner time conversations. <laughs> we do. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, just another question I always like to ask guests that come on and, and then we'll get into sort of more into kind of your a- a area of expertise which is obviously you know, research and, and periodization which we'll speak about. Um, with, with regards to the physical preparation profession, what are the best things that you're currently seeing and what are some of the negative things that you're currently seeing? Um, well, I think one of the best things that we're seeing is that you know there's a lot more respect for the profession now. 
Mm. Um, in the early in the early 90s, you know, strength and conditioning in the U.S. was relatively new, and so we weren't really respected as much as we are now. Um, and I really thank guys like Mike's, Bill Kramer, and, and the and the people of that generation that really set the framework for the rest of us. Um, I think really a good thing right now is I, I, the NSCA is really changing its course a little bit. We're really working hard to become better and more integrated internationally as a collaborator. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot more change going on, I think, in the industry. Uh, you know, obviously the Australian Association is moving uh, forward. The UKSCA, you know, my, one of my favorite organizations, has moved forward greatly in the last uh, 10 years. So I think there's a professionalization of the industry that's changing. Um, as far as challenges, I mean, there's a lot of challenges in the industry. I think while the internet is a great source of information and uh, resources, sometimes it's hard for people to um, wade through the noise to get to the facts. And I think that's a challenge. And, and people need to really spend time learning science. They could look at somebody's theory and say, well, that doesn't make sense because of this. Or, you know, oh, that makes a lot of sense because the evidence supports it. So I think that's probably the biggest threat or challenge that um, uh, at the moment, in my opinion. Great stuff. And just out of interest, how, how have you managed to end up in Australia? How did that come about? Because obviously you're, you're originally from America. And, um, how, how did the position in Australia open up? Uh, it's kind of, you know it's you know, I'm a really big believer in you know opportunities come and and take them if they fit you and you don't if they don't. Um, you know I've I've known Rob Newton for many years since about '96. I've known Prue Corny from you know about 2003, and I was at a conference and they were like, "Hey, do you want to come to Edith Cowan?" And I said, "You know, I'm always interested in hearing opportunities. I mean, you know, I I hear a lot of you know a lot of people talk to me and." casually say, hey, you know, come work with us and nothing ever comes of it. And to be honest, I really didn't want to come to Edith Cowan. I was pretty happy at West Virginia University School of Medicine. Um, but they offered me a package that, you know, I couldn't say no to. And uh, it's been an interesting um, I've enjoyed uh, working with the Australian Weightlifting Federation. Um, a lot of great opportunities uh, to work with this country's uh weightlifting group and the AIS, um, and really, uh, 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 luckily, Lynn Jones, who was someone who talent ID'd me when I was a young weightlifter in the U.S., and who ended up coaching Terry Pott, but also coached my wife at Olympic festivals, uh, is back in Australia, and our first day in Australia, he was at Edith Cowan doing a weightlifting course, and just kind of a lot of doors for us uh, here from a weightlifting perspective, so but it just kind of happenstance, it wasn't planned. Great stuff. So let's get maybe a little more specific into the into the episode and the reason why I really wanted to get you on was um, I suppose a lot of people know that you've done a lot of work in, in research and the academic side and you know you recently uh, last year the year before released the fifth edition of periodization with uh, Tudor Bampa and maybe just uh, get into your current ideas of periodization and, and maybe just speak more about where your mind is when the word periodization comes up like so what, what, is it, what are your thoughts on periodization and um, yes yeah, just basically you can delve into that as much as you want um, the thing with periodization is it's kind of an interesting journey I mean you know originally I was going to write a book by myself on periodization human kinetics wanted me to do but mm. then Dr. Bopper wanted to continue to 
to write, so they kind of put us together. We come at it from very different perspectives, and one of the things I did, because it's really important that we respect the history of what we know about things, I spent a lot of time reading the early works of Matviev, Bompa, Verkashansky, Bondarchuk, you know, all the classics, um, and, and my ultimate favorite is actually a guy named Laszlo Madore from Hungary. Um, you know, also studying with Mike Stone, who's considered one of the American gurus of, of periodization, I kind of have a really unique kind of exposure to periodization. For me, when I start to think about periodization, I think it's something right now that people are kind of questioning its validity and its usefulness, and that kind of perplexes slightly because fundamentally to me, periodization is a planning paradigm and a programming paradigm. So both of those aspects are under the broad title of periodization. So if I'm working with a scheme, I have a season. I, I know when my competitions are. I've got to plan accordingly. So that's part of the periodization uh, model. The programming actually is the part that I'm going to use monitoring and um, athlete wellness questionnaires to guide what the athlete is responding to. Um, but I still have to have a path to go down. So I need to know what I have to try to achieve. Some will achieve it faster, some will achieve it slower. And we modulate the training factors in the program in order to drive the athlete towards you know, a sustained goal of either you know, optimization of performance for a long season or a, a culmination at the Olympics or, or whatever. So for me, it's really a combination of programming and planning. Have you seen any of the uh, the literature from John Kiley from Ireland lately? And uh, I suppose some some people are misinterpreting what John is saying. Like you know, uh, John has kind of brought to light that some of the you know quote unquote science of periodization isn't really that like the science behind it isn't as hard fact as we thought. But then people think that John's saying that there's no need to plan and you just make it up as you go along. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that we can't say for certainty that this exact plan is exactly like the, the exact input that we're getting is going to give us this exact output and that we can't stick rigidly to a plan i think any good coach knows that you have to be fluid with your plans and, and with periodization to a degree yeah. but have you seen any of john's writings or any of that greg yeah I, i've actually read john's work mike stone's discussed it with me periodization with programming, that's my own opinion. Um, from my perspective, um, I would disagree with him on the classic literature. Um, if you look at the stuff that was done by Matthew, you will never be able to do a study of the magnitude that was done by Matthew in modern One, because it was done in a communist country. It was a ginormous uh, study to look at statistical trends and what were the characteristics of athletes that were successful. So there is some really strong science there. Um, the problem is it was done in the Soviet Union when they did it more in textbooks. They didn't do it in journals as we know today. Would I say that the, the periodization research of today is probably not as strong as you think? Yeah, because I think we're confusing programming with periodization. A fundamental example of this is daily undulating periodization. It's not periodization. It's, it's programming. Mm. You're changing programming structures. So, you know, Stone will talk about that at nauseum when he does speeches on it. So programming is something that is going to be fluid. And your goals, as far as your competition season, 
we're seeing a deviation in some sort of adaptive response, we can change that. I mean, I don't think anywhere in the classic literature did they not say there was an individual response curve uh, to actual training stimuli. That's well documented some of the translations. So from my perspective, it's, it's, I think we're debating the same things over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of muddying the waters. And, you know, it's not Moses with the granite rock with the Ten Commandments that we can't change. It's, it's, it's a broad-based plan that obviously coaches will have to make decisions based on um, how the athlete is responding. And I don't think any of the classic work that I've actually read actually says it's dogmatic and structured to the point where there are no changes. Um, Stone and I did a, a programming periodization study comparing block periodization with daily undulating, and what's not really highlighted in that study was that the daily undulating group we had to drop training sessions because they just wouldn't—they weren't surviving. Um, so if it was dogmatic and, and, and rigid, we would have left those training structures in, mm-hmm. regardless of how the athlete was responding. So I think that's—that's that's my opinion. I think John's really raised some great questions that makes people think. So just to to clarify, are you seeing programming as something within periodization? It's an element of periodization. Yeah, yeah. Because you have planning and you have periodization. So, for example, uh, if I know I've got the Olympics coming up in in August, I know that I have to be a certain level of performance there. So that's my target, and I plan out my structures to get there. I use monitoring to see how I'm tracking. One of my favorite uh, studies that was done by uh, Dave Mark and his brother on Anna Mears before the 2004 Olympics, they were talking about, and they presented it at the American Medicine, that Anna was progressing at too fast a rate. Her speed was coming up too quickly, and they were afraid she was going to peak too soon before the Olympics. But they were monitoring her. So what they did is they added more strength training in to get more fatigue in order to get her on this response curve that they were trying to get to. So if you think about it from a periodization perspective, they had a plan to get to the Olympics. They knew their time frame. They used monitoring to modify the program in order to allow her to do her best at the Olympics. And I think that's how I kind of see periodization at this moment in time. Um, And that may be a little bit different than I saw it 10 years ago. I was a little bit more dogmatic 10 years ago. You're going to do four weeks of this four weeks of that mm. but as we've gotten more technology uh, we can use that technology but I want to be really cognizant of the fact that to me monitoring tools such as GPS wellness question session RPE are tools to inform training decisions not dictate training decisions yeah. and in your research over the years do you have a bias towards any particular periodization scheme or is it in the context of the timeline of the athlete where they are in their career you know you hear like a lot of people saying you know obviously the more novice the athlete the more sort of concurrent their training could be the more advanced they get they need to get more to block or saturate blocks for specific qualities that's one thing people talk about um, mm-hmm. and, and then you read someone like Dr. Bondarchuk and you're like well all his stuff fucks up everything I've read because <laughs> it's you know very oh, yeah. It's very confusing, and for me, what I try to do is I try to dial it down to principles. Yeah. So I don't, I don't believe in systems. You know, for me, I believe in, in, in principles. principles. So yeah. we have to think about what we're trying to accomplish. So, for example, let's say I'm working with.
team sport athlete. If I were to use a pure block structure there, it probably won't work mm. because I have to have multiple attributes that are trained simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Because that athlete requires multiple. You know, in my sport of weightlifting, it's real simple. We have two attributes: weightlifting technique and strength. Yeah. So we're always blending, so we can be more almost block structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we start to look at it, you put two ends of the spectrum. You have sequential training, where you do the classic hypertrophy, strength, power, which is really the foundation, if you think about it, of block training, if you look at yeah. the certain things. Yeah. You know, one saturated event, then another saturated event. You could then look at parallel training, which is the classic where you do everything at the same time that you're going to train. Uh, obviously, more novice athletes can, you know, they don't need this much training variation per se to get better. Um, so a parallel model work quite well for novices, especially for youth athletes. But then we start to think about, okay, is there somewhere in between? You know, if a pure parallel model doesn't work and a pure sequential model doesn't work for everyone, can we blend the two? So what you could look at it as a, as a, like a pendulum. Mm-hmm. So you could take a block where you have several parallel factors that are in different percentage contributions that are sequenced over time so that you can have an optimization of multiple training factors over the long duration. And in a book that I'm hoping to finish next year, we're, we're talking a little bit about this concept. Um, so for me, I think it depends on the sport that you're working with which model you might buy of training, uh, the athlete's training age, and really, you know, what your targeted goals are. If you're a multifactorial athlete, you have to think about multifactorial training. Yeah, yeah. It sounds, uh, you know, like when you go from the, when you look across that continuum of, you know, the parallel concurrent model to the block synchronization model at the other end, and in, in between is the sort of sweet spots, similar kind of towards Charlie Francis vertical integration in that like Charlie's like you always train everything at all times you just you just change the emphasis so like it's you know you have your primary and secondary and tertiary sort of emphasis and so, some people call that like a modified block model where like you're not it's not that you're focusing only on one quality or it's not that you just purely focus on one quality that's it you will focus on a quality or maybe even two compatible qualities while you maintain all the other qualities um, and, and then obviously each block is a foundation for the for the uh, succeeding block. But um, that, think about that. That's, that's that's Zaksiorski's book and his model is that you have you know some training factors you are stimulating, some you're maintaining, and some you're detraining. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, I think that works for some sports. It doesn't work for all sports. It, it doesn't work great for weightlifting um, or or potentially powerlifting, in my opinion. Mm. So it depends on how how complex that sport activity is. Yeah. So if we look at rugby, for example, we know rugby union is very dependent on strength, obviously, but it also has a speed component, a power component, an endurance component. So you've got to be careful when you interpret Charlie Francis's stuff. He's saying you train everything, but if you look closely at what he's talking about, everything that's related specifically to sprinting. Mm-hmm. So you have to know what that sport's physiological underpinnings are so that you can target them and then you're going to basically vertically integrate. So for me, the way I look at it now is <coughs> we have a vertical integration factor and a horizontal sequencing factor. So we're going to play with different contributions in different blocks 
so that we could build the foundation for the next to take advantage of delayed printing effects from the previous block. Mm-hmm. Now, the holy grail of sports science is to determine the residuals. What are the training residuals? That, 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 that's, that's one of my next questions for you, because I'm struggling to find stuff on that bar Ishrin, but Ishrin is always, he's always like um, referencing his own material. I can't find anything else on it. It's the holy grail. Nobody knows for sure what training residuals, how long they last. Yeah. But it's as a strength coach, and I think this is where scientists who are also coaches become quite powerful, is that I've had athletes that what I would call rapid deep trainers for strength, where if they don't get a strength stimulus on a regular basis, that goes away very quickly. Mm-hmm. Those athletes tend to also be rapid gainers. When they have a strength stimulus induced, they get strong really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, your genetic makeup is probably going to impact um, your, your rate of decay or your rate of gain. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that we're playing, we're trying to get to, we're very interested in, in, in my group here, in looking at can we match your genetic allele makeup to a specific periodization model yeah. or structure, mm-hmm. which it, it, theoretically it, it might work, but to find the funding to do that is quite difficult yeah. because it's not a health and wellness kind of issue, and genetic testing is quite expensive. Now, I know David Bishop from Victoria University is doing some things with aerobic training and genetic profiling, and and. and Finding some interesting results, um, but no one's really looked at it really with the strength factors, and I think that's something that needs to be done. But to me, the holy grail right now is to figure out how to determine someone's training residual, because if you think about it, so many things impact it. Your 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 nutrition's going to impact it. Yeah. Your genetics is going to impact it. Yeah. The programming structure is going to impact it. Uh, your recovery rate's going to impact your it. Training age, yeah. Your training age. Training um, age. You know, systematic inflammation. You know, one of the things as you get older, um, you tend to have a lot more low-grade inflammation than you did when you were younger. Yeah. So it, it becomes a problematic structure because in a designing a study, you want to try to weed out all the contraindicative stuff and just look at one factor at a time. And the sad thing is, in the model like this, I don't think you can. Um, we're trying to design some studies at the moment to look at my, my doctoral student, uh, Grant Rowe, is looking at this idea of a sequential training and then a detraining um, to see how rapid a contralateral limb is going to detrain. Now, that's not perfect in the sporting world because you wouldn't completely detrain. You'd change training stimulus. But it might give us an idea of what can happen. Yeah. Um, Kale Hackenden's done a little bit about you know how much strength training do you need to maintain strength. But fundamentally, I think that's where more research needs to be done because there's a lot of opinions about you know uh, how to maintain strength or power or speed. Um, you know, Stone and I come probably from more of the strength-centered focus. Um, to me, strength underpins speed and power, change of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so when strength starts to decline, we start to see a lot of things go awry. And, and my good friend, Dr. Dan Baker pretty famous strength coach, uh, showed me some really interesting data from when he was with the Brisbane Broncos that shows when they won championships was when they were stronger at the end of the season than they were at the beginning, yeah, yeah. which is contra- contradictory to what much, most people believe happens in a season. Um, so when they didn't win, they were weaker. So to me, strength serves as that foundation. 
now the question becomes: Can you can you build strength with only power? Um, in weak people, I would argue yes. In strong people, I would argue no. I would offer up True Corning's work to show that you know in her studies, if you tease out her studies and you look closely, she has a detraining effect of strength for stronger people when they just do power training in in about four weeks. So is that a training residual? Possibly. So we're looking at the combination of strength and power. So what is the relationship, that blended vertical integration of, of those two factors? Can you just say that part again? Because you, you kind of skipped out there. So you were saying just a bit yeah. like the, that skipped out. It was just so you were saying people who are strong, if they did more power work, they detrain quicker. But if people who are more power oriented, so just say that again there with the. Uh, what I said is that weaker people, if they do, you know, just power training, they're probably going to get strong. Okay. Because with weak, weak people, almost anything you do is going to get them yeah. stronger. Yeah. yeah. With strong people, if I focus solely on power training, I'm going to see a, a detraining effect on strength. Yeah. Uh, because they're not going to get enough stimulus to actually make strength. Yeah. So what we believe, and, and this you know harkens back to the days when I trained with Stone, it's a blending of strength and power together. So if you think about some of Stone's models of periodization, he had a hypertrophy, he had a basic strength phase, and then he had a combination of strength and power, not just power. Yeah. So if you look at that, that makes a whole lot of sense. And there's some, some evidence from the and Zimpero that kind of underpin that to suggest that that model of sequencing works really well if strength is your own output. <clears throat> and that's where it gets a little muddy, because in the research world, we always want to dial down to one output because we want to control everything but the one factor. In sport, it doesn't work that way. We have to think about multi-factor how they interact. Yeah, yeah. I just like, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, and even probably I, I would say too, you know, strength is the foundation to the likes of power, and then you obviously you can break power down into its components like of starting strength yeah. and explosive strength, and then there's elastic reactive strength. And obviously speed and then speed breaks down to acceleration and maximum velocity, etc., yeah. etc., et and then multidirectional. But just an interesting conversation I've had, like with the likes of Matt Jordan and James Smith, the Tinker, and you know, you still see a lot of like gymnasts or even track and field people who don't lift a lot, and still they can produce wicked amounts of force. Like their their explosive strength and their elastic reactive capabilities and speed are just off the chart. But yet, from an absolute strength standpoint, they might necessarily set the world alight. Which would then make you have to step back and say, is strength the foundation, or is this a genetic thing too, where you just get these people who are more wired to be explosive, and they don't necessarily need as much strength buffer. And then the other argument is, okay, yeah, they're powerful and explosive, but they, the, the fact that they're not strong puts them at higher risk of injury. They, don't, they need the strength to buffer the power. Um, whereas more often than not, what we're always getting is people who are weak, and if you just make them strong, obviously that bleeds into improving their power and speed. So, like, have you had any thoughts on that, like, as well, that maybe it's, it's not always about that force end of the perspective. It's not always about, sorry, that um, mass end of the, the equation of force, that sometimes the acceleration end gets you to that end product, too. Well, if we step back and we think about our physiology a second, your skeletal muscle is limited by how fast it can contract. Yeah. It's a biochemical reaction that you cannot go faster than. Yeah. So your muscle has a, has a, has a it's got a rate that you, you can train fast as all you want. It'll go no faster than that, that enzymatic reaction. Yeah. You can increase force exponentially. The, the body's physiology is set up to increase force. Yeah, yeah. So 
Good one. Good one. Because reality is that skeletal muscle has got a limit to it. And there's tons of biochemical research. So if we think about force being the one factor that we have the most potential to change, that kind of gives you evidence why strength is kind of the primary focus. Yeah, yeah. Now, to backtrack your statement about gymnasts, I think you got to step back for a moment and think, what is strength training? Strength training is not just putting a barbell on your back and cleans. Or yeah. that's, that's one way of strength training. Yeah, yeah. But gymnasts do bodyweight strength training. And they're some of the strongest people relative to their body weight in the world. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was a weightlifter. I was in a strength training class, and one of our university gymnasts had come over. He'd never bench pressed in his life. Never bench pressed. He probably weighed about 60 kilos. He ended up doing 150 kilo one RM in class. Yeah. So he actually is strong. He just doesn't do strength training mm. the way we think of strength training. They do body weight strength training. They do impact strength training. So I have to be cautious when people say, oh, they don't strength train. Uh, sprint, look at world-class sprinters, a lot of them are quite strong, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look back at Ben Johnson, he was a triple bodyweight squatter. So, does that mean that that you know that he's some sort of anomaly? Well, Asafa Powell's pretty strong. Tyson Gay was pre- is pretty strong. Uh, the British uh, uh, sprinter from a couple years ago was quite strong. I saw him do a 190 kilo power clean. So, the reality is we don't really know where they get that strength from, but still that ability to produce force is important. Yeah. So how do we develop that ability to produce force? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, you know, if, if you look at some of the great weightlifters out there, and you, let's take you know Tara Knott on a gold medal in 2000. She was a gymnast when she was a youth athlete. So gymnastics actually is a way to improve strength at a young age foundation for later. I was a gymnast before I became a gridiron player and a weightlifter and an athletics athlete. So when we start to think about strength training, I think sometimes we put ourselves in this, it's got to be a barbell. Yeah, yeah. This this is the reason why I asked the question too, because this this is the answer I wanted you to to give that we're so, most people are very narrow-minded or isolated in that strength training, you know, it's in the weight room with these massive loads and that's, the gymnast example is perfect. It's like, no, there's many... There's many uh, roads to Rome, as they say, so there's different mechanisms to develop this strength. But I would also say that we have to be careful not to be afraid of the weight room. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, too. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because the weight room is a very powerful place. Um, we just did a study on young netball players, and you know, the conventional wisdom is, is often, oh, if they're not good on their functional movement screen or some sort of movement screen, don't load them in the weight room. It's too dangerous, you know, if they have a little knee back this though, we can't squat. Well, after six weeks, we did just strength training and a little bit of plyometrics with them. We saw incremental improvements in uh, their movement, their netball movement screen, performance, and movement capacity. We still loaded them, but within within technical proficiency. Mm. Um, we're writing that up now with Rob Lloyd. Um, so I think we have to be careful that, you know, Sometimes getting stronger fixes a lot of problems. Mike Stone used to say that. Yeah. Getting stronger fixes a lot of bad things. Yeah, that's definitely right. A, a, a lot of uh, like a lot of injuries are, are just a case of people being just too weak for their own bodies. Absolutely. Uh, we see, you know, I mean, I watch a lot of rugby, and, and what I see a lot of is rugby teams who have a shifting paradigm. Uh, you know, one of the 
teams down here switched their paradigm very much towards speed and explosiveness, and they haven't done real well. Yeah. Then another team that's been pretty bad has gotten a strength coach who's more strength-oriented, and all of a sudden they're starting to win a little bit. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's trying to find that balance between you know mobility, power, and strength. It's almost like a recipe. Um, it's almost like cooking. Uh, we've got these ingredients, but try to find the right recipe for the group that I have. And just because it works with group A doesn't mean it's going to work always with group B. And I think that's the art of coaching. But here, I should have said this when you asked me what are some challenges, is that I think we're losing the art of coaching in, 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 the, in the sporting world right now. I think we're becoming so dependent on monitoring tools, GPS, um, you know, push bands, chip wares, you know, all these tools to monitor training that we're, we're waiting for the computer to tell us that somebody's ready to go or not ready to go. Mm. And sometimes, as a coach, you can make a decision by, based on experience that flies in the face of the monitoring, but actually works out better. And I think that's the art of coaching. Uh, my wife has a joke that she wants to she wants to draw a picture of a computer with a baseball cap on top that says coach, and then a bunch of guys standing around it with assistant coach staring at it, waiting for the answer. <laughs> and I think that's the problem, is that sometimes I think we're over-sciencing um, uh, things. So, for example, let's say that we're at the Olympic gold medal match in, in, in basketball. Actually, one of my students actually was an athlete for the Opals. They played in the gold medal round in 2012 against the U.S. team. What if my monitoring tools say that I am not ready to perform? What happens? What do we do? We don't have a choice. The Olympics are not going to move the game because I'm not ready. So the question becomes, if we monitor and pull out of training when they're fatigued, when do they practice competing and training or dealing with adversity? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, like the sim fact of the matter is you're going to have... I've had this conversation, too, with Joel Jameson in that, like, someone says... Somebody's saying, oh, what if I turn up red in my HRV, like, and I've got competition that day, and Joel's like, you you, you play, like, you compete. He's Like, Joel's trying to get the point across, like, red doesn't mean that you're going to die that day. It just means that it's it's not an optimal day for you to, to train and to put load on. But he's like, if it's a once-off, like, a competition, he's like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's when you start training on, on multiple red days, he's like, that's going to be a problem. He's like, when you well, have... That's, that's probably the, 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 the smarter way to look at it. Yeah. But I would even step back and say, there's a trend right now in strength and conditioning, and I see it at some of the institutes that I visit, where they bring an athlete in, they do this monitoring test, and it's like, oh, it's a red day. You can't train today. Go do some yoga or Pilates. And my question becomes, if you send them away every time they're under stress, yeah. when do they practice competing or performing under stress? Exactly. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying break them. I'm not by no means saying that you should grind people into the ground. But some days, things aren't right. I mean, I could tell you many times as an when I trained with Stone, I'd walk into the weight room and I'm like, I feel like rubbish. And he's like, yeah, so what? And by the time the warm-up's over... I feel pretty good, and I set a PR. But yeah. if you had asked me to do a monitoring questionnaire before I started, I probably wouldn't have trained. Yeah, yeah. And the vice versa can happen. I feel amazing after the warm up. Not so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that monitoring thing is not as 
concrete as we want to believe it is. Well, I mean, not, nothing can be concrete when it comes to uh, a dynamic or- organism that is that is the that is, that is the human species, you know. So, I mean, I mean, I I guess that that's the main point John Kiley is trying to make. I know you were saying earlier on that there might be a disagreement with the periodization versus planning. Uh, to be honest, I think. I think if we all sit down in the room, we'd walk away saying, oh, we agree on everything. It's like most things. It's just that sometimes there's just uh, miscommunication or there's assumptions made, and it's and it's usually s- semantics is a bit to do with it. But at the end of the day, it's just that humans are complicated biological systems. We're highly influenced by our environment. I mean, that's why I think, you know, for any sort of coach or anybody involved with dealing with other people in terms of their health wellness or performance should really you know be keeping up to date with things like epigenetics and um gene, gene expression and how genes interact with their environment but uh yeah i mean it's 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 definitely uh it's, it's definitely interesting all right you know how 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 so many variables come into play and we need to be able to step back and look at the timeline and look at that thirty thousand square foot view and not look at things so much in isolation intelligence is huge it's absolutely massive but i mean that, that, that's just another component of how how uh, complex the human human species is you know there not only is it not only are we complicated from a physiological standpoint we're very complicated from a psychological standpoint so absolutely 100 percent agree i mean emotional intelligence is, is becoming more brought into the the mainstream awareness now in terms of you know being a successful business owner and just being a better communicator with people and obviously with coaches and athletes so yeah emotional intelligence is huge it's, it's like that old benjamin franklin saying no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care so i mean 100 percent called it grit and I look at it in 
situations, how do I develop the emotional and psychological robustness to overcome adversity when it does arise in the field of competition? And I think that's an interesting phenomenon. We're, we're in our attempt to protect the athlete from injury and protect the athlete from overstress, have we actually created a psychological conundrum where they're not robust enough emotionally and psychologically to handle adversity? And that's a really interesting question. Um, and when we look at some of our weightlifters um, that we train, and my wife and I actually coach a weightlifting team, we start to look at some of them, you know, they, they, when they're not comfortable, it's a challenge. And they want to feel fresh all the time. Yeah. But kind of the point of training is to actually become fatigued to get adaptation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really interesting mix of how all that comes together. I'm still chewing on it, um, enjoying the book greatly. Um, I recommend it to almost anybody to read that works in sports science. Yeah, Angela Duckworth is the author, isn't she? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a interesting lady, and she's got some really great predictive models. I've actually, I'm thinking about actually reaching out to her to talk to her about replicating some of her work in, in, in weightlifting. Yeah. Because weightlifting is kind of this unique sport where it's a grind. Yeah, but uh, I don't think as a weightlifter you ever feel really great except for day of competition. <laughs> but I mean, if you look at any any of the like most famous people in history, like. Nearly every great thing they did was in the face of adversity. You know, like the great people don't see negatives as negatives; they see them as opportunities. Like they're the people that say, "I don't lose, I learn. I either win or I learn." Like they're those type of people. So, yeah, and definitely, it's it's funny you talk about this generation. I mean, I'm I'm I mean, I'm going. I'm 29 now, so I'm a little bit older than the millennials who are like in their teenage and early twenties now. Like I I do remember a world before the internet and mobile phones, but. Uh, I was listening to Simon Sinek, the guy who wrote, you know, Start Why and uh, Leaders Eat Last. And he was just speaking about that, that this generation are like so like they've grown up with nothing but instant gratification. And they want everything now that if they feel if they feel they're not making an impact or they're not seeing instant results, that they just quit. They give up. They're not. Whereas the old people, I mean. Like fuck, you mean you look like Abe Lincoln? Abe Lincoln was known until he was in his fifties, and like he's the most famous U.S. president ever. Like you know, or all these people who like for years were just grind. Like Einstein for a decade grind over relativity. Like you know what I mean? Like ten years, and then he eventually eventually cracked that. And like, are you today are just like you know likes on Facebook and instant dopamine going to their brain? And so that kind of p- plays back to this idea of maybe they need to understand more you know grit and to, to to suffer a little more and so persevere and that will obviously carry over more into their performance and into their life in general like oh absolutely and if, if you step back and you know you think about the profession that we're talking about which is strength and conditioning you know on the outside it seems like such a glamorous profession in the sense that you work with these really amazing talented athletes and you see the performances as a young strength and conditioning coach. But when you get into the nuts and bolts of what it's all about, it's, it's a really complex, almost orchestra of communication, interaction, application of science, long hours, uh, data understanding. It's not this real quick, easy thing. Yeah. And... Yeah, I remember when I worked with Mike Stone, and I, I was I actually.
actually was really blessed. Uh, I actually was a, an intern strength coach under Megstone, who I think is a phenomenal strength coach. And, you know, after working a couple 80-hour work weeks, I'm scratching my head going, this is, this is hardcore, <laughs> you know? And, but, you know, you did it because of for the sports and the, the, the wanting to do it and, and, the, and the motivation. And, and so I think a lot of times people forget that. There's a lot behind the scenes that go on as a strength or performance coach that you're involved in. You're doing a lot of different things, and it's a people thing. Yeah, um, it's not just data. Data is important, but it's also communication and knowing and reading people. Yeah, it's funny. Every nearly every person I've interviewed, uh, like spoke to, whether it is a strength co- a strength conditioning coach or a doctor or a rehabilitation specialist or a holistic health practitioner, nearly everybody goes back to being able to relate to humans, being able to relate to people, knowing that it's kind of like the Frank Dick saying. I, I interviewed Vernon Abetta there the other day. And he was he quoted Frank Dick, and Frank Dick's like, "We don't train." rugby players or tennis players or track and field athletes we, we train people that per, that perform these sports um, yeah. so yeah it just goes back to that human element all the time Greg just to move on because there's one or two questions I definitely want to get to before I have to let you go um, yes. training compatibility just one question this one question I'd be dying to ask you because since I read periodization it was actually in periodization that the 5th edition of Bampa and then, and then with Ishran's work. So you look at Ishran's work, and Ishran says that alactic and aerobic qualities are compatible, that they go well together. And then you look at Charlie Francis' high-low model, you know, it's basically an alactic day with an aerobic restoration day. And then you read some of the research, and they say, oh, aerobic destroys your strength. There's an interference effect. Is it simply just the case that there's a certain threshold in terms of the intensity and volume of aerobic work before it becomes detrimental to like alactic qualities or is it just strength as the quality that it's detrimental to like so does that question make sense it's a great question Uh, it depends on how you're looking at it my my wife's favorite strength conditioning questions is is it depends yeah which is which is most which is most things in life you know everything's that gray area people want black and white but most things are straight down the middle well, we know there's an interference effect. For example, if I'm a world-class weightlifter and I start doing long-distance running, I'm going to lose leg strength. Yeah. It's inevitable. Is it because the factors are incompatible, or is it the inability to recover from the factors? Ah. There's some That's an interesting there's some inter- oh, Yeah, because if you look at some of the self-signaling work, there's some interesting papers that have come out recently that suggest that there's enough distance between, for example, your strength and your conditioning that you have less of an interference effect. And then there's some meta-analytical data that suggests that it depends on frequency, volume, and of the aerobic. If we look at strength, cycling has less of a negative impact on leg strength than running based on some meta-analytical data. So the question becomes, what are you training for and what are your major outputs? Now, I'm a firm believer that high-intensity interval work seems to have less of an interference effect if programmed and placed correctly within the microcycle. So where they sit and how much distance is in between those training factors or the order of those training factors. So I think it depends, for example, if you're training to be absolutely the strongest human being you can be, that aerobic training is not in your wheelhouse per se. Yeah, yeah. Where it gets a little bit murky is in sports like sprinting. Uh, Mike Stone would say never do aerobic work with sprinters, but I know sprinters who do aerobic work 
to have some condition in the base phase, in the preparatory phase. And that seems to be a personal choice depending on the coaching structure. And there's successful people that have done that. I know in track cycling, which is a sport that I'm very interested in, um, the sprinters do periods of aerobic training to build a base at certain times of the year, but then other times are very high-intensity oriented. So from a purely physiological standpoint, we know that there is an interference effect, but the magnitude of that interference effect is dependent on a whole host of other factors. Um, For example, how fast do you recover? What is your status? How close are the training factors together? Uh, What is the sequence and order of those training factors? Yeah, like, it's funny that you said Mike would say a sprinter never does it, and then, like, what... Charlie Francis had all the sprinters do aerobic work on the low days. Like they, like Ben Johnson was the fastest human being, bar of Usain Bolt, and he did aerobic work like two to three times a week. But I guess it goes back to your point there. It depends on the frequency, the intensity, and volume. Like I suppose Charlie used it more as a restoration rather than a developmental. He wasn't like, right, we're going to make you a middle distance runner on the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday while you sprint on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Obviously, then there's an interference effect. So I, I think it's just been able... It's been able to to, to disseminate that while looking at it and, again, not being so black and white. So, go on, you were going to say something? There's another question that you have have to throw out there with Charlie's athletes is how much do anabolic steroids reduce the interference effect? Mm. That's a question that you you have to kind of throw out there. Um, One thing we know about anabolics and, and, and the times when they were legal, you know, were they ever were they ever legal? <laughs> they were. Prior to nineteen seventy two you could take drugs. It was okay. Oh, cool. Diana Ball was actually used quite extensively by weightlifters, track athletes, everybody. There's actually a famous uh, track and field news uh, cover where the, the cover says Diana Ball breakfast of champions from the sixties. Fucking so, hell, that's gas. So if you think about this, we know that those drugs when these can actually create scenarios where people can respond very greatly. So the question is, if we use some historical data, Ben Johnson is did test positive. Did the drugs allow him to do those things? I might argue potentially that it could have, but I have no data or evidence to prove that. Mm. So the question then becomes, with non-drug using athletes, which is where we want to be, do we have to be more specific with our training interventions because there's less room for error? Yeah, yeah. But it, it, I think another thing too was that, see, Charlie, the thing with Charlie, and you know this too, he was like on those aerobic days, you know, be at 75% or less. So I'd say just my take on it would be it's the fact that the intensity is 75% or less that it probably didn't have an interference effect with the alactic output capabilities of the speed training on the high days. So maybe that's it. I, I, like again, it's probably because it, it's coming down to like the volume and intensity and the amount, the frequency too, the amount of aerobic training, and that could that's going to have a detriment then on alactic capabilities. And it'd be interesting too to see like, you know, when we say alactic capabilities, like how detrimental is aerobic say to strength versus you know the the power to to power and then with power is it more detrimental to elastic reactive strength versus explosive strength? Very interesting questions to ask, you know. For me, aerobic training would probably be more detrimental to rate of force development. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, r- rather than that, absolute strength, yeah. Potentially. Uh, but 
if aerobic training continues for too long, you will see a reduction in in absolute strength. So, for example, yes, yeah. um, I've a lot with Australian weightlifting, and we've had a lot of crossover um, from CrossFit, which is a wonderful sport and, and, and one that I enjoy uh, watching and, and I think is a great sport. But one thing we see with the weightlifters that come from the CrossFit background, because of the, uh, the high-intensity interval work and the volume work they do, uh, they tend to weaker in the legs, and they're, they're clean as handicapped. Yeah. They catch very well, but they clean quite poorly uh, because the absolute strength isn't there. Yeah. Why? Because they're basically doing two sports. They're training for one way of performing, which is for the CrossFit games and things like that. And that's excellent. It's phenomenal that they're incredible athletes. Yeah. But when they transition over to make weightlifting, you know, for example, our number one female is a CrossFit athlete. Yeah. Very good, very talented. Um, but her clean is where I would want it to be as a weightlifter. Mm. I'd want it much higher. And so just, oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. That's kind of evidence that there is an interference effect, and the way you train is going to impact your output. So yeah. I think what you have to really know is what are the outputs that you want. Yeah. What are your targeted outputs? And maybe it's okay to have a little bit of an interference effect on strength, because you're getting something else that you require. Yeah. And that's where that parallel kind of training with vertical integration becomes a big session point. Yeah, yeah. Like me, so, like, uh, absolutely, 100% agree. Without question, there is an interference effect. Like, if you take someone who's a powerlifter or an lifter and they start running, that's definitely going to be detrimental to their to their p- p- performance. But, again, it's what, again, it comes back to context. We talk about if it's a field-based athlete, there's always going to be a uh, give and take because they need they need both strength and they need development in those alactic qualities of strength and explosive strength, elastic reactive and, and speed, multidirectional, and they also need the, the aerobic element. I guess the question for me was just, like, how, how much can we get away with doing aerobic kind of work without it taking away from those alactic capabilities? So, like, when Ishran says alactic, aerobic, do go well together and then you could because then i like for me personally where i'm at in my development i can make that dissemination okay that he's right to a certain point and then there is a point or a threshold where if you do too much rubber like we spoke on there definitely is an interference effect but because i'm constantly getting from people oh when they read ishran's work first they go he's saying they lack the equality are, are compatible and so does like buddy morris and all these American football coaches, you know, they lack the aerobic, they go well together, don't do loads of glycolytic work. But I read these papers and they say aerobic is detrimental to your strength. It's like, well, both are correct and, you know, it's context again. So it's just interesting to get your take on it. And then just moving on from that then, oh yeah, do you want to add to that? I mean, I could give you some data. I mean, if you look at this, there's a meta-analysis done in 2012 by Wilson, published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, and it was, he showed some really interesting effect size statistics on, on different things. Uh, he's got some wonderful graphs on things about running concurrent, cycling concurrent, strength training on, uh, for example, lower body strength. Mm. Obviously, uh, running concurrent training, you're going to have a, an interference effect. Same with lower body hypertrophy and lower body power. Yeah. But what's interesting is he also did some things on per day, per week of endurance training. The more days a week you do endurance training, the more reduction you have in strength, power, and hypertrophy. Yeah. Now, when you start to look even further, what's the duration of that training, of aerobic training? Anything less than 20, uh, 30 minutes seems to have some of a, uh, effect. The effect is the least on strength, the most on uh, and hypertrophy. But as the length goes out, you get more, more reduction. So let's say I did 20 minutes. I have less reduction in, in those factors. 
then just uh, another question too is that again coming off Ishran's work and you know you'd hear some other coaches talk about this as well is that the incompatibility then of glygolytic work with alactic work so there was a big trend there over the last decade it's kind of petered out maybe the last four or five years but say from like the early 2000s to like the mid and late 2000s like everybody was doing just tons of glygolytic work since like tabata came out and everyone was doing like you know 30 on and 30 off and you know and they're all saying oh don't do any aerobic work because it will make you slow just do loads of like interval but by intervals they meant like basically it was like lactic capacity almost aerobic power and early type work um and in Ishran's book like he's saying that glyc- he's saying that glycol like uh, glycolytic and or lactic and alactic don't aren't very compatible together like that the ends like you'll start to get those enzymatic changes to to towards like more glycolysis and you'll actually start to have a detriment on the phosphocreatine energy production system so like have you looked into that too is is there science to prove that too much glycolytic work is detrimental to the to to the alactic qualities i don't think you can stop like that um remember all energy systems are working concurrently yeah all the time yeah which one's Which one is predom- yeah, predominant? Um, and if you think about it, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Martin Boucher. I, I think uh, Martin Boucher is one of the rock stars of, of our profession. And, um, he's got some wonderful work on his 3015 interval work training, mm. uh, res- repeated sprint interval stuff. And if you look at it, he did a wonderful review paper with Paul Larson in, uh, in 2013, excuse me, a two part paper. And he looks at this idea of what factors do different training interval work impact. So you've got things that work short intervals, long intervals, repeated sprint training, sprint interval training, and speed strength, and how they impact the different energy systems. Um, I don't think you can separate glycolytic from uh, alactic. And the reason I say that is because we know, for example, in the sport of strength uh, weightlifting, there's a huge glycogen load in, in strength training. You, you use tons of glycogen. In fact, my dissertation was on glycogen metabolism mm. in resistance training. And, you know, a 45-minute leg session, you reduce your muscle glycogen by almost 35% in your quads. Uh, now, conventional wisdom is, oh, it's strength training. You're not going to use that much glycogen, but you do. Because you're limited in your ATP and phosphocreatin stores. So you can almost completely phosphocreatin. And your body has no recourse but to, to go to glycogen to meet that high-intensity demand. If, for example, you continue to work continuously, your intensity goes down because you know, the oxidative system can't meet the rate of, of energy supply. So for me, it's, it's, it's really about the intensity of training and what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. And you do get a huge aerobic benefit from repeated sprint and short interval-based work. In fact, Larson and Boucher have shown very clearly that you get a greater go to max gain from, from interval work than you do from aerobic work. Uh, just to follow up on that then, like I... I like a lot of people do say that like so for instance even in a field-based sport obviously your, your glycogen stores are depleted but is it not more of a case they're de- like again it's it's not like in a game you did this consecutive 40 second sprint multiple times it was these multiple three to five second bursts with insufficient aerobic restoration that depletes your glycogen and see what i'm seeing is that coaches see things like 
oh like there's this, like this huge lactate or there's there's huge glycogen depletion we need to start training like this and they start doing like classical like glycolytic work like like 800 meter runs with field-based athletes and then the argument like the argument is then like like that's that's a completely different energy pathway than what they're going to use in their game like okay they might they, they might be like losing glycogen but they're losing it through a different mechanism and then like the i suppose for me like the principle of specificity if, if you're if you're doing like heavy 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 glycolytic work with a lactic aerobic athletes surely that is going to have a detriment then on those energy systems that are predominant in the sport it depends on what you're defining as glycolytic work and 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 and, you know obviously people saying you know that 30 second mark in that range you know kind of that longer distance things i I wouldn't recommend that to do long distance you know 800 meter runs and things of that nature yeah yeah but to me i I don't look at it in that way. I look at it as, how am I going to relate the perform? I train for performance, not recovery. Mm. And recovery will take care of itself if I train for performance. So to get better at tolerating lactic acid, for example, you have to experience lactic acid because you have to develop the bufferings to actually to have that capacity. So if you look at people in track cycling who do the, the, the kilo, they tend to produce the highest lactic acids that are recorded, but they can tolerate it because they trained under those intensities. Is there a huge glycolytic effect for those events? Absolutely. But also, you're going to also have an alactic effect. I don't, I personally don't think you can separate the two that much because you don't, unless you're going to run all out and then rest for a long, uh, up to eight minutes, you're not going to get complete resynthesis of phosphocreatine. Mm-hmm. So you're always going to be tapping into glycogen in some way to actually buffer off that reduction in phosphocreatine. Unless you are a sprinter who does a one-off as fast as you can and then rests 10 minutes and then does another one. What about the, the, the top process of increasing your alactic threshold so that then when it comes game time your efforts are actually a lot more sub-maximal, therefore that you won't, you'll, you'll stay away from having to tap into that glycolytic system as like as often in the game, and therefore you can stay more alactic aerobic for longer, and hence sustain your outputs for longer as well. What would your thought process be on that? Well, if I look at physiology, I know I, I, I look at your, your body, look at your skeletal muscle as a bottle, right? Yeah. That bottle can only hold so much phosphocreatine. Yeah. And ATP. It's not limitless. So you can't increase it beyond its capacity. Yeah. If we look at phosphocreatine, phosphocreatine for example, creatine supplementation, we know if we take it, it stores more phosphocreatine than the skeletal muscle. Once the skeletal muscle is, is saturated with phosphocreatine from supplementation, we have very expensive urine because it spills out. Mm-hmm. So you have a limit on how much you can store. The only way to increase the amount that you can store is to increase the size of the skeletal muscle. Yeah, yeah. Correct? Yeah. So from that perspective, I, I, I question the logic of I can increase my capacity because you what you're really increasing is your ability to use glycogen to replenish ATP and phosphocreatine in repeated amounts. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got to look at the biochemistry. Uh, one of the things that you have to realize is the biochemistry is pretty pretty set. You can modify it slightly, but you're not going to make these real crazy adaptations where I can only use ATP and phosphocreatine. It just won't work. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I'm reading a book there that the physiology of uh, training five forms by du- by Duncan McDougall and Dibby Sale, and they were saying that when it, when it comes to the the phosphagen system, that that trying to get more phosphocreatine to, or to develop the cap- the capability to store more phosphocreatine, or that the limiting factor for the phosphocreatine system isn't the actual isn't biochemical. It's more the actual neurological force output capabilities that can be improved upon more so than the actual bio bio, bio, bio biochemistry like so that was an interesting well, point but, I mean. you can only store what you can store yeah now people who have a greater fat rich profile can store more yeah atp and and digby sale and mcdougall i mean their book is excellence it's one of our textbooks here in your talent it's um and and a lot of what they talk about there is spot on 100 percent in line with with a lot of Mike Stone's theories as well. Mm. So um, you can change other factors more than you can that biochemistry. And that gets where you get into that big debate on low-carb versus high-carb diets. And, and um, you know, for example, we know in a rugby map, there's a huge glycolytic effect in the fact that you lose a lot of muscle glycogen. Yeah, yeah. And so being on a low-carb diet, you may not be able to tolerate uh, a rugby match if you haven't manipulated carbohydrate correctly. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, like a just a last little thing there on that too is that you know the importance of the aerobic system though in in resynthesis of the phosphocreatine again because of that big sort of you know hit was massive there as I said in the, in the early to late two thousands and a lot of people start to neglect that you know aerobic development if we're talking more about a field-based athlete now this is you know so uh, we saw a lot of these athletes with very poor actually rest and heart rates uh they didn't have that central development even the peripheral development from an aerobic uh, oxidative standpoint was poor like uh, to you like is this like well to me it's still important that though that for an alactic aerobic sport or field-based sport still has you know an appreciation for these um aerobic Adaptations to be in place to help with the resynthesis of, of phosphocreatine. What would your take be on that? Uh, I'd probably be probably be a little bit different than you in the sense that if you look at it, I don't think you need to do aerobic work to develop those capacities. Oh no, no, yeah, sorry, that's that's uh, that's not what I'm saying either. Again, these are the misassumptions people come across. I'm not saying you have to do or, like. There's many ways to develop the aerobic system through different. Like yeah. when you say aerobic to people, they think that you're out doing like 90 minutes running out in the road or something like that. I mean, that's not necessarily the case. That's where I've kind of prefaced this. So if I look at Martin Buttigieg's work on the various ways that you could do high high intensity interval based work, he's got models where you can actually develop peripheral adaptations. So you, when you design your resistance to your uh, intervention team you actually will pick from a, a menu almost of different factors to actually try to um, cause the adaptations that you um, and, and that will include also the anaerobic speed reserve. So with Martin, yes, you're doing interval work, but your outputs, outcomes are physiologically based. Mm. And so for me, you're going to develop those aerobic adaptations from intervals that you do if they're programmed correctly. When you say, when you say intervals, what do you what do you mean? Like, because I mean, an interval could be five seconds on, twenty five seconds off, or it could be thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, and there there there's going to be a different energy system distribution. You can look at it on a spectrum. So you you've got what you would call high intensity short intervals, which work around your velo- uh, uh, velocity of intermittent fitness, which is about one hundred and twenty percent of your VVO max. 
you, you could have a long interval go down to about 90% of your VVO2 max, but you could also go up into your MAS and your short interval training up to about 95% of your uh, max sprinting speed. So there's this spectrum, and, and there's different factors and different ways you could program this. Um, you know, Bart talks a lot about this idea of there's basically nine variables that define a hit session. So you've got intensity, duration, work modality. Um, you've got relief intensity and duration, number of series, series duration, time between series, and time uh, and between series recovery intensity. Mm. So by manipulating those nine factors, you can impact either peripheral or central adaptive responses, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Now, in his second part of his review with Paul Larson, it's actually a two-part review uh, in sports medicine. He actually talks about programming for team sports, and I was lucky enough to, to consult a little bit with him on how to do the periodization side of things. Um, he actually bounced some ideas off with me. But he puts together an example of how you might manipulate different training factors to kind of get different responses for the athlete. So it's kind of an interesting concept um, where you might do a two-by-five-minute run. Uh, you maybe do 10-second intervals with 10 seconds recovery, um, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. So the, the key that I like about Martin's work is that he gets that velocity he gets that velocity, that VVO2, velocity at VO2 max, so that he can then program it much like you would program in the weight room. You know, if I'm going to program the weight room, I'm percentage of my maximum, I'm going to put rep ranges, things together. You can do the same with this interval-based work. So the 3015, which I'm a, I'm a super fan of, gives me this ability to kind of grade or, or target where that athlete's going to do certain things. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I know now if James Smith was on the line, he'd be having he'd be disagreeing with everything here. <laughs> he's well, he's. Hey, that's yeah, yeah, no, like it's it's. Uh, I had I had a question there now. It's after slipping from my mind, but um, uh, interval based. Anyway, it, it, there was something there in my head. It might come back to me. Just in terms of the training principles, uh, uh, Doctor Half. I don't know if you've seen the, the work of uh, Mike Isretel. He came out with a book there last year called The Scientific Principles of Strength Training. And he what he'd done was he took the, the principles of training and he put them in a hierarchical order. And Now, this was more geared towards powerlifting, but, I mean, he was saying that it would pretty much transfer over to most sports. And he put it in, in a sort of hierarchical order that specificity was, was most important, then your progressive overload, then fatigue management, then stimulus adaptation, recovery, variation... Yeah, phase potentiation and individuality so they were kind of 70 put in a hierarchical order from 1 to 7 have you ever done any of that yourself because it was the first time where I'd seen those put in a sort of sequential order that made sense whereas you read most classical literature it's just like here are the principles and they're all over the place so like some start with overload some start with variation some start with irreversibility but he was the first person to kind of you know put them in a category so have you I, I, I haven't seen his categories but I would question if that's the order yeah. Um, because I would like to know why he's ordering it the way he's ordering it. Um, and I know Mike from when he was a grad student in, in Stone's lab, but from my perspective, I think there must you need to have much more thought on that concept in the sense that I, for me, variation is central to 
effective training, but over-variation is problematic. It's just as bad as under-variation. Hmm. And when we start to look at this concept of specificity, we have to be really careful. Um, one of the trends that I see now is that we're trying to make the weight room identical to the, the field of play and over-specific. We're forgetting sometimes building capacities. As a strength coach, job is to build capacity. It's not to model the sport that I'm working with. Because fundamentally, if I have to be so specific, then I might as well just put a, a weighted vest on my soccer player and send them out to play and never do any strength training. Um, so from my perspective, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at Mike's thing. I haven't seen his stuff um, uh, at all, really. Um, I'd have to take a look at that and and chew on it and think about what's the logic behind this and how would it relate to other sports because I think that spectrum may not be the same for every sport you know what's a hierarchical structure for a weightlifter may be very different than an endurance runner yeah yeah I suppose you, you, I, anyway like most things there's a lot more to it than just that but you probably have to read a book and speak to him again if we start having a conversation about it we'd, we'd probably start making incorrect assumptions you know and it's, it'd be unfair Absolutely. it'd be unfair to him I wouldn't, and, and, I wouldn't want to make an incorrect assumption yeah exactly yeah. It'd, it'd be unfair to him like to, to start doing it but uh, it, it was just it was it like he he obviously has reasons why it's in that order like i and i, I know them i know they are myself because i read the book and I've, I've had them on my podcast and spoke about it but uh it'd be unfair for you then to try and give a, a viewpoint off me trying to summarize his you know his 300 page book in like one minute so but uh, it's maybe something you can look into and we can speak about at a later date and get your thoughts on. It'd be very, very interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah. uh, Actually, what's interesting is that Mike Stone looked his thoughts. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Greg, just ra- wrapping up here, is there, um, I- in terms of your career to date, what would you say have been the biggest mistakes you've made and the biggest lessons you've learned? Um, biggest mistakes I've made hard to say. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes all young academics make is they think they know everything. <laughs> um, you come out of grad school and you, you, you're filled with knowledge and you think everybody. So over over time, what I've learned is that I know less than I think I know. Yeah. Um, I think one of the mistakes that you, you, you can make is that when you start to take your work so seriously that it becomes point where when people question it you take it very personally yeah and your work is not who you are uh, as a person your work is a, is what you do mm. so for me i try to not take criticism so personally as far as my research because really you know research is put out there to be questioned and and i love it when people go back and replicate our work and, and verify what we do um, some people find that offensive. I don't. I actually think it's great. Uh, when Jeff McBride replicated all my isometric mid-high pull work and, and basically showed exactly what I showed, it was validation for me. So I, I think when you're a researcher, you're putting yourself out there, so you've got to be willing to accept the criticism and work from that criticism and reflect on it. As far as the smartest things I've done, um, I think one of the smartest things that you can do as a sports scientist and, and, and and one of the lessons that Stone basically beats into you is that you have to do what you practice and what you say. So I still compete in weightlifting even now. 
I still train five days a week. I'm still in the weight room. And, you know, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to be in the weight room coaching weightlifters. So I'm coaching, I'm, I'm lifting, and I'm researching. And for me, that really helps me think about things. Because I can do things in my lab. And I can create environments that will prove my theories correct. And then when I go to try to use it in the applied world, it may be complete, utter rubbish. Um, one of the, I think the smartest thing I ever did was marry my wife. <laughs> uh, because I definitely upskilled. I, I definitely married up. And one of the things that I love about her, and I often tell people around the world she's my secret weapon, because I will come up with some very elaborate research study about some. And she'll look at it and go, yeah, this is great, but it's not going to work in strength and conditioning. And I'll be like, why? And she's like, well, because from a practical perspective, you can't do that. And I think that's it's really nice to have someone that you trust in your life that can actually question what you're doing and make you reflect. Yeah, big time. And I think that's important. But I also think one of the smartest things you can do, your network of friends uh, are critical. Like for me, I mean, I've got Duncan from on speed dial. If I have a question about that I need some reflection, I'm going to call Duncan. Um, Dan Baker, another one that, you know, I believe, you know, when I have a question about something and I'm not sure, I'll call Dan and see what Dan thinks. You know, Mike Stone obviously is a go-to guy. Um, you know, Joel Kramer at um, University of Nebraska. A lot of people don't think of him as a sports scientist, but he's really sharp and thinks about things. Um got a lot of people that I, I, I reflect with, you know, uh, Jeff McBride, Travis Triplett, people I've known for years that have come up through the ranks as sports scientists, and it's, it's really interesting to get into debates and discussions with them. But I also think you have to kind of develop a worldly kind of view. You know, the approach that we may use in strength and conditioning in the U.S. is very different than what I've seen, for example, here in Australia. Does it mean the U.S. model is better or worse? or the Australian is better or worse. I guess it depends on what you're looking at. So I would say one of the most important things is to be open-minded, but let science help you make decisions. So if you know scientific principles, you can make decisions for yourself and not you know, believe every snake oil salesman on the Internet that's selling you something really wonderful that's the answer to everything. Mm. Step back from, reflect on what you know and what science tells you, be caution that not everything published in a journal is good, because there's some journals out there with some interesting data. But get a get a group of researchers that you know do good work. Like for example, I follow Mike McGuigan. I've known Mike for years. Does great work. Um, you know, I love Rodney Lloyd's work, and I love collaborating with him. Avery Fagenbaum. You know, there's a group that you just go to, and you start to read their work, and it kind of helps. But then there's other people that question your ideas. And then you know you have to explore more, but that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, big time, big time. That's that's great. Uh, actually, that. Uh, how much more time do you have, Doctor Half? I probably need to wrap it up in a few minutes. My wife is probably waiting at the gym for me. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah we'll wrap it up in a few minutes. Just uh, so that question that, that I couldn't think of. You were talking just about just regards to central development there of the heart. You were saying that that Martin Buget was doing some central development. Um, of the heart was yeah. that was was that true intervals as well was it? Yes. Yeah. No. He has a he actually has a spreadsheet where he has created models of change direction uh, interval work and it started for team handball where he can take central and peripheral adaptive responses. Yeah. Um, 
and it's really fascinating work. If you haven't read Martin Boucher's work, do. I, I, I was at a seminar with him last year, but and I I, you know, I spoke to him a little bit, but I haven't officially read uh, read much of his stuff. But I suppose what what just for like like I let you go, like I'd kind of like to maybe summar, summarize in terms of what what I've been educated on energy systems up until now, and then maybe get you back on for a part two, and then you can come back. Like so, I mainly de- de- deal with uh, field based sports, Gaelic games. So and. From what I've been studying over the last time, like I'd be heavily influenced by, say, Joel Jameson, Jane Smith, and Buddy Morris and these guys, that they and Charlie Francis as well, like, and they would have said that they that was an alactic aerobic sport and and Ishran's work, by the way. So, from what I understand, they're saying that if you do a ton of glycolytic based work, that destroys your alactic system. That's what they say, or that, that's the message that seems to come across that your alactic output can suffer because of too much glycolytic dominant based work. If if that's all you're doing, and that. And I, I know, I know you're gonna you do it discreet, but I just, well, I'll just give you my summary, and then you can like, because I want you to take it to pieces. I'm not trying to. I, I'm one of these people that I want like my my thoughts to be challenged and differed because I'm learning. Uh, and then their kind of thought process is that if you increase somebody's alactic output, this idea of alactic threshold, whether it's through neuro, neurophysiology or more phosphocreatine, which it doesn't seem to be the phosphocreatines we spoke about with capacity, but their whole thing is that if you can increase someone's absolute alactic power output, that then what they call their maximal output, then their operational outputs will be more submaximal. And also, if you can improve their aerobic system, They'll be able to resynthesize phosphocreatine quicker across across the course of the game. Like so, their whole thing is you want to keep your athletes away from using the glycolytic system as as much as possible in the game because it's so inefficient from a metabolic standpoint that they'll fatigue quicker. And also, if you do a ton of glycolytic work, they believe it's detrimental to the alactic system as well. So their whole their whole thing again is increasing that alactic threshold, whatever you want to summarize. Yeah, go. That's looking at it from an aerobic mindset, in the sense that your 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 that threshold, that lactic threshold, is really related to aerobic training. Um, so when you start to look at Martin Boucher's spectrum, you have your maximal uh, your ro- maximal aerobic speed, anaerobic reserve. So I don't think you can I, I don't think you can say I've not read anything that says if I do glycolytic work by the lactic system is compromised. Well, Ishra, in Ishran's book, it says that. Like he has a chart. I know that, but I'm talking. I'm not talking books. I'm talking science. Yeah, yeah. No. So, but, but, but then, I'm if, talking, if we, if, 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 if we just went back to training principles and specificity, surely if I do a whole lot of glycolytic work, I'll get better than at utilizing that system. Whereas there, there has to be a detraining effect to my other system. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would agree with that because you, you have to go through the. You know, I call it the phosphagen system. You call it the alactic system. You've got to go through that to get to the glycolytic system. You're assuming that you're you're, you're not training that still. Um, so I'm not sure I could dial it in that specifically. Because yeah, I know, yeah. No, I'm just I, I'm just I'm just putting a thought out here. I'm just putting a thought out there. That's all. There's some work that a six second sprint will use glycolytic system. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. I'm not sure you can dial it in that specifically. So from that perspective, I'd like to see science that would actually either support or refute that. My guess is that it doesn't work that way based on biochemistry. Yeah, like they now, they, they would look at Martin Puget's work or anything like that and say it's too glycolytic that it that it's gonna it's gonna be detrimental to their alactic output capabilities. Like Buddy Morris is like 
Like, for instance, if, if just a, que- a question to you with American football, would you do any glycolytic work with American football? And that's, that's a purely alactic aerobic sport. I would do, I would, it's not a purely alactic sport. Oh, because buddy, buddy would completely disagree with this. this. This is good. This is why I like this. It's a pity you have to go now. It, it, it's, it's not a completely alactic sport because you have repeated intervals. It depends on the rest interval that you have. Yeah, yeah. Because you'll have incomplete recovery. True. So, for example, you look at the University of Oregon, they snap the ball every 10 seconds. That is not going to be purely alactic. Well, we'll say alactic from an alactic capacity standpoint. We, we'll definitely, I definitely agree that the rest intervals are of a. You, you can't predict them. They're gonna they're gonna be insufficient. But it's more like an alactic capacity. I think the the bioenergetics. He he put research in his book saying that the average play was like four to seven seconds, and the average break was like 40, 45 to sixty seconds or something like that. The average, but it's not every team plays that way. Yeah, but yeah. The, also, the reality is forty five seconds is not enough to replenish the alactic system. Well, if you only make a four second burst. Like a, a pure a pure alactic all out effort is generally gonna be about seven to ten to twelve seconds. You will not resynthesize fast enough. You need at least forty seconds to get about eighty percent. Yeah. Now, come here and, and this 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 is where this is where I would agree, like I'm in agreement so far everything you're saying, but what I, what what you'll see is you'll see these papers that will say, Oh, we took these athletes and we took out their blood and look at their lactic levels and it was off the roof, therefore you need to do a lot of anaerobic and the papers also say this too, this sport is anaerobic and it's like there's two anaerobic systems, anaerobic alactic and anaerobic uh, lactic or whatever titles you want to give them phosphogen versus glycolytic. Like, if you like, look at American football, it's also position specific. Yeah, yeah. If I take a black receiver who's running sixty yards and has to run back in that forty seconds that person is going to be more glycolytic and they're going to have a greater glycogen load because of the distance and the time that they're running. Yeah. So from my, from my perspective, I, I know that if I do <coughs> repeated anaerobic bouts in the glycolytic system, I will improve my VO2 max. I will improve my work capacity. I will improve my ability to repeat interval stuff. What we have to manipulate intensity of those those bouts yeah like now i know that they would say that doing that will be detrimental to their alactic output they would say it will it, they, they'd get slower from an absolute speed standpoint well of course but the question becomes do you build speed first and then learn to repeat it or do you try to repeat it build it i would say you get fast first and then you build the capacity to repeat it yeah they, 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 they would say that too because if you build if you build capacity before the power you're just building submaximal outputs which is no good Correct. so one of the guys that i like in the nfl is a guy named tom mislinski from the jacksonville jaguars oh that's that's the, yeah yeah we I, I know him well and he he'd be he'd, he'd have a very similar training top process to buddy they're like best friends i know i know him very well um and and Tom and I are very much in line with a lot of our belief systems. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, if I was going to talk to somebody about NFL, I'd go to Tom. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's good friends with James, too. Yeah, so he's good friends with James. I guess, the, 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 like, I'm really glad now I asked this because we, it's just more clarification. Again, if me and you were sitting down and having a chat over a table and a whiteboard is there, we'd be like, oh, so you mean that, I mean that. Yeah, well, then... And even even if there was a disagreement, like it'd be like, good, I didn't know that before now, because I'm definitely gonna look more into Martin Bouget's work now as well. But uh, I I guess the the one sort of thing that I'm just trying to get across to is that 
Like, yes, there is there can be a glycogen load, and and I suppose saying saying that a field based sport is a lactic aerobic is actually incorrect. It's more like it's an a lactic capacity sport, and the fact that your rest intervals can be are are chaotic and can be insufficient times. Of course, you're gonna have to go into glycolysis and use a bit of of uh, and use glycogen to drive ATP resynthesis. I guess the the I the I or the the argument them lads put across is that you're trying not to dip into that as often as possible because it's so metabolically inefficient and fatigue quicker. Personally, I don't think you cannot dip, dip into it. Yeah, but like you're they're 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 trying to say you're trying to diminish diminish the dip in of it as much as possible. Like if somebody has a very poorly developed lactic system and aerobic system, they're gonna go into glycolysis a lot quicker. My my opinion, you cannot stay. The alactic system is limited. It yeah, is limited yeah. for short activities, and the only way to replenish it is either with glycolytic or oxidative. Yeah. So you're on a spectrum of replenishment. It takes a lot of time to up, up, uh, speed up into that aerobic system. So from my perspective, it's anaerobic, anaerobic, and you're going to play within those two spheres of glycolytic and, and alactic. Um, I don't think you can separate it into such individual components. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but I would love to sit and debate that with someone. I'd like to see the physiology and the biochemistry. True, true, For yeah. Me, show me the biochemistry. Yeah. Don't just give me opinion. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'll, I'll let you go now because I know you have to go. Uh, I, I'm in agreement with all that. But I think it's just that... When people see something like oh there's a huge lactate or glycogen demand they they start training those as like I said like 800 meter runs as these one repetition things whereas no they're they're, they're getting to that stage through an interval mechanism. And I'm agreement I'm in agreement there. I yeah. would do my training for that with interval work, not yeah. continuous work. Because like, so, but, but Buddy's big gripe with American football is you see all these American football coaches doing 300 yard shuttles and he's like why the fuck are you doing a 300 yard shuttle like that's ridiculous. Good strength coaches in the NFL group don't do 300 yard shots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. well. That's we're, we're, we're in a great. Yeah. You can you will tap into the glycolytic system with interval work. You have to. Yeah. Uh, like like, re, re, like yeah, re, repeated sprint. Like if you were doing repeated six second sprints with uh, insufficient recovery, you're, you're gonna you're gonna tap into it. Like. You're still gonna tap into it with sufficient recovery. Yeah. Unless you take it out to eight minutes. Yeah. If, if think about this, At, my dissertation was three was. Uh, Sets of 10 in the squat. Okay? We did four, uh, three sets of 10 as a squat, 65%, with two minutes rest in between sets. Then we did one-legged squats at 45% of 1RM. When you say one-legged, legged, is that Bulgarian, is it? Uh, split, yeah, Bulgarian. I don't call it Bulgarian because Rip. they didn't invent it. It's called a one-legged squat. I call it, it yeah, well, I call it rear foot elevated split squat. I, I don't call it Bulgarian yeah. either. I call it rear foot elevated split squat. We've been doing it. So we did three three sets of ten uh, one-legged squats, and then we did some step-ups. The whole workout took 45 minutes. Two minutes rest between sets. We had a glycogen reduction of almost 34% on average. Yeah. You would argue that two minutes should be enough of recovery. It's not. It depends on the on the on what you're doing, the intensity, the volume, all of those things. So I don't think just because you have a, a rest interval that supposedly is going to replenish everything. It's not, because if you think about it, right, if I don't have complete recovery of the PCR system, which takes eight minutes, each set that I do, or each burst that I do, I get an in, a decrease in the stored um, PCR. I've got to slowly start to go to glycogen to make up that difference. So unless...
unless you're getting complete recovery, you cannot not tap into glycogen. With your ten reps, with your ten reps, though, that that wasn't like how long was the ten reps taken to complete? Because ten reps, like, is probably going to take you fifteen, twenty seconds, is it? Uh, I can't remember. It's been a while. I think it was. I think we had a one second cadence. Yeah, like I mean, yeah. ten ten rep, ten reps would be a glycolytic load generally as well. So if that wouldn't be yeah. an alactic, that would yeah. be an alactic load. Like if you were hitting like singles and doubles, if you hit a single and rested two okay. minutes. It'd be interesting to there's see. Some there's some data on that as well uh, from Gristaga. If you do a set of five, you still have a big glycogen reduction. Yeah. And it, uh, it's a wonderful paper. But that's because it was successive sets, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was like multiple sets of five. Yes. Yeah. So nothing's done in individuals. But anyway, I probably should go because my wife keeps calling. Yeah, shit, sorry. I, I went way over there. Uh, Dr. Hafs, just finding, where, where can people find out more about you? Uh... I'm on Twitter at Doc Hoff, um, and uh, I'm at ECU, and I'm at the NSCA conference this year, and I'll be at the UKSCA conference this year as well. Great stuff, great stuff. Well, uh, I'll, right. I'll be I'll be sure to let you know when this is up. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Robbie. All right, thanks take care. Bye. So, guys, what an amazing podcast with Dr. Gregory Half. I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, keep supporting the podcast by uh, de- uh, by leaving reviews, downloading the show, and uh, sharing these when they come out. I know the audio today was a little bit all over the place. I mean, Greg is on the other side of the world. He's over in Australia. Um, but for now, that's it, guys. Uh, take care. I'll talk to you soon. And stay strong. <laughs>